Now, I think the big point, though, is that we shouldn't be thinking about degrees and skills as mutually exclusive. That's one big point I want to make. So welcome to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty, and uh, today we've, well, we've got a special guest every week, but this is a super special guest. This is Brandon Busteed, Chief Partnership Officer at Kaplan North America and my former colleague. So welcome to the show, Brandon. Yeah, good to see you, brother. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to chat. Now we get to do it uh, live or at least uh, in front of an audience. So looking forward to it. I know it's going to be great. You know, today uh, we're going to continue our Rescaling Revolution series, and uh, Brandon is going to be a big voice uh, in this in this conversation. You know, we're thinking about skills versus degrees as signals of workplace competency, and just this whole this whole concept of 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 skills. Uh, in uh, in in both the uh, institutional and corporate worlds, but before we dive into all that, Brandon, uh, tell our listeners your story. Well, I've been at Kaplan now about three and a half years, um, and uh, have been in a role that's largely been responsible for building university partnerships and employer partnerships around uh, a number of critical initiatives. Right, identifying for the universities, uh, new mission-driven revenue sources, right? Uh, improving the recruitment of international students, online degree programs, non-degree programs. So Kaplan's been a really major partner behind universities. And, uh, and the same thing with employers. You know, people know us a lot for a lot of the designations and credentials and licensure that we help prepare them for. But we do a lot of things, coaching and advising and uh, a whole bunch of uh of other really critical pieces. So, you know, that's uh, that's been a lot of my focus at Kaplan for the seven years before Kaplan. I was the head of education and workforce development at Gallup. I got to see the world through a, uh, a massive research lens and, you know, kind of a light consulting uh, type perspective. And so the, you know, the, uh, the combination of the Gallup viewpoint around this and then the ability to be at a at a, a global, broadly diversified company like Kaplan, where I can actually go make things happen uh, it's been a really nice combination. And then, you know, the 11 uh, plus years before uh, Gallup, I was an entrepreneur. I started a, an educational technology company right out of college, long before they called it ed tech companies. This was in 2000 and uh, a company called Outside the Classroom that was later acquired by EverFi. And uh, EverFi this year was just acquired by BlackBot. So uh, so I've been an ed tech entrepreneur and, uh, you know, at, at a famous research organization like Gallup. And now it one of the world's most diversified uh, education companies in Kaplan. So it's it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's just such an such an impressive uh, career arc that you you've been able to navigate uh, for for yourself and and your family. So congratulations on that. Uh, but the the question that I'm asking a lot of folks is what's that one event in your life that was that tipping point or that key accelerant in your career? Well, you know, I was, uh, there were a lot of points, I think, where I feel pretty darn fortunate, but I think the one, you know, major trajectory changing moment for me was in college. Uh, I was at, I was at Duke University, obviously, uh, you know, very, very well-renowned institution, uh, but I had an opportunity to run for and was selected to be a young trustee on the board of trustees. So they have this unique role where they elect one undergraduate student a year to a three-year term on the board of trustees. And so I, I graduated from Duke and was immediately uh, a member of uh, you know the board of trustees with uh, Melinda Gates, 
several other billionaires, a Nobel laureate. Uh, and, you know, and to start uh, to start a young person's career in that kind of boardroom with those kinds of leaders, I mean, I, I just can't I, I just can't put uh, a value on it. It was it was absolutely incredible. So, you know, there were obviously a lot of you know key milestones and turning points, you know, academically and, uh, and then in my career afterwards. But, I, you know, I can I can trace a lot of things back to that. Uh, and in fact, uh, my uh, ultimate arrival at Kaplan you know, the uh, one of the board members of Graham Holdings, Rick Wagner, was the then CEO of General Motors, and he was on the Duke Board of Trustees. And I met Rick when I was a young pup at the age of 22. And some 10 years later, he, you know, made an introduction to Andy Rosen. And about another eight years after that, uh, you know, we started talking about Kaplan. So uh, in any event, that was uh, that was probably my my biggest uh, turning point. Yeah, if our listeners get one thing out of this conversation, I I want to hearken back to uh, what Carl Swayzer told me very early in my career, which which was very simple. He said, "Always keep moving," uh, and you know if you're not moving, you're standing still, and, and it's just so simple. Uh, but I'd like to point our listeners out to. Uh, Brandon Bustide as the exemplar of an individual who is always keeping moving. You can find his written word on Forbes, uh, and you know you're 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 writing, you're contributing, you're 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 selling, you're changing the arc of of education. Uh, and you know a lot of people would look at that and go, oh, geez, I he's a superstar. I, I can't aspire uh, to to be Brandon. Well definitely aspire to be Brandon, but just always, always keep moving and use Brandon as that, as that shining light. So hopefully I didn't, uh, uh, embarrass you too no, badly. But, you know, there. I'll just add something, Andy, you know, uh, you're right. I do a lot of writing now. Um, and, but I didn't, I didn't always used to. And in fact, uh, one of the most memorable moments I had in, in college from a, you know, uh, a professor, uh, perspective was class I had with Joel Fleischman, we had to write papers for the class every week, and he would spend the first half hour every week going through grammar edits on the papers that were written. And he never said people's names, right? But you always knew when it was your paper, of course. And he started with the papers <laughs> with the most red ink on them. This was back in the old red ink days. And mine was always on the top, yep. right? So I, I endured a whole semester of embarrassment, right? Because I was not uh, the strongest of writers. But I remember him pulling me aside one day and he said, Brandon, he said, uh, you can improve your writing. He said, but your ideas are really, really powerful. And he said, you know, keep running with that. So it took many years to hone, you know, my writing, uh, you know, kind of output. But, uh, you know, that, 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 that did not come naturally. Let's put it that way. Uh, it's a it's a great lesson for folks. You know, you sit around and we're going to be talking about skills uh, today. And you sit around and you think about your skill set and you think, oh, I can never learn math or I'm a terrible writer. And, you know, you just get yourself in this mindset that you can't. And if you get yourself in that mindset that you can't, That's right. you won't. Um, and it's it's just that that yep. that simple. So you can. And, you know, Brandon's a great writer today. He started off not being a great writer with all sorts of red ink. Uh, I started my career not knowing how to type. I 
I, 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 I skipped out on, well, I'm, I'm a high school dropout. So, uh, but I skipped out on, on typing class never. And I, I had to teach myself. It was painful, but I, I, I can, uh, I can type real, real well today and you, you can right. do it. So right. anyway, well, Let's get to the meat of uh, what we're here to talk about, which is this thing that World Economic Forum has dubbed the reskilling revolution. Uh, they and others uh, estimate that up to a billion people will need to be reskilled, not just upskilled, but reskilled over the next decade. You know, as you, Brandon Bustide, think back to your experience at Gallup and the myriad conversations you've had with academic and corporate leaders uh, since joining Kaplan and before that. Is this reskilling revolution real? Is it hype or is it a combo of well, both? Look, that, that one billion estimate might be an underestimate in the grand scheme of things, right? Because there's varying degrees of reskilling and upskilling. I mean, just think right now in, in most of our workplaces, how many different software tools we are all now using, right? Whether it's, you know, customer relationship management tools or internal communication collaboration software. I mean, you know, my, 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 my rough estimate is I use somewhere between 20 and 30 different software tools in any given day at some point, right? Now, I'm not a pro in all of those, and I, I probably could learn how to be a super user in better ways. So, like, if you take those micro examples of how do you stay current with all the basic tools that you use in your workplace, like, th then, then all of us are going to be in some mini version of upskilling, reskilling. Then of course there's the there's the bigger shifts, right? You know, my entire job function goes away because it was automated or, you know, influenced in a dramatic way by AI. Or you know, there's new jobs that have been created that we just can't fill fast enough because people aren't trained in those jobs yet. And so, you know, the, I think the simple point here is that the pace of change is is hurling at a pace that we have never seen before. And and what that means is like, even if I learn a new skill, the shelf life of that skill, if you're in software development is between six and 18 months, you learn a new software, you know, uh, you know, program of some sort, you you have to be in a six to 18 month constant reskilling process to stay relevant. And I think that's going to start to come in a lot of different jobs. Obviously, it's going to be impacting some in more disproportionate ways than others. But I think the simple point is that billion is probably an underestimate in the grand scheme of things. And there's just a lot of implications for that, which I know we're going to talk more about. But yes, this this reskilling revolution is here. It's being driven by the pace of technology. It's being driven by uh, a number of other forces, too. But that's really the biggest. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we we talk about specific skills and listeners will want to know, well, what about me and what should I be, be focused on? Um, you know, I've, I've, I've got my own ideas that, uh, Dan Strafford and I talked about, but I'm interested in yours on, you know, what are the most important future skills that our listeners should be thinking about acquiring yeah, right I mean, now? Look, I'm going to, I'm going to just focus on one because you, you, you could, you know, we could make this list more or less exhaustive, but I'm going to just I'm going to put it in the bucket of communication, whether that is interpersonal communication, whether that is written communication, whether that is social media uh, prowess in terms of how you might utilize various tools from Twitter to LinkedIn, um, how you communicate with teammates. Right. And that is the the in-person format of that. That is uh, the virtual format of that. That is the 
chat IM, you know, side conversation during a meeting format. What's interesting is you look at some of the people who are the most successful engineers, right, in the STEM field, right? They've been trained in technical areas. They're very technically skilled. But you and I talk about this all the time, right? It's, it's kind of what you would call the behavioral and the technical that start to bring it to life, right? So, so I want somebody who's specifically skilled, but I also want to see that they are a strong communicator, right? To, to, to promote and defend their own ideas, right? To communicate to customers or clients, even if you're in non-client facing roles, I think communication is absolutely just one of the most powerful tools that we have as human beings. And so there's a lot of forms of that. There's the written form, there's the oral form, there's even body language, right? And what kind of signals I'm sending uh, as I'm in a meeting and, and all those things matter. So I think if we, if we were all very astute to our communication powers, for some, it's going to come easier than others. Like I was always, I was always nervous speaking in front of a crowd, but I always loved the opportunity, right? We know there are people who are just petrified of speaking in front of a crowd. <laughs> and then for me though, you know, I had like back to my professor, he saw promise in my ideas, but I wasn't communicating them as clearly, or there were so many, you know, spelling or grammatical errors that it was distracting people from my ideas, right? So that was something that I had to work on. I had to have some mentorship and support. And what's ironic about that, Andy, is that didn't happen until my junior year of college. How did I make it that far before somebody was like, dude, you need to work on your grammar, right? Um, and so I'm glad it happened later, you know, than, than, you know, than not at all. But I, so, so I would just say communication is going to be one of those fundamental things. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can't agree uh, anymore. It's, it's just, it is so fundamental to our future existence. We can no longer simply rely upon our technical prowess to carry us uh, through our, 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 our jobs. And we've got to be highly effective at communication. So thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, now, we're going to segue just a little bit here to uh, you, you and I have talked a lot uh, during our time at Kaplan and, uh, and beyond about alternative paths ways uh, into the world of work. You know, uh, we're, we're both well aware that uh, for uh, most professional jobs, at least, the degree has been the pathway into the world of work. But when we're thinking about reskilling uh, a billion people or so over the next 10 years, we, we, need, all, we need other pathways, other ways to, to, to get in. Um, uh, you know, you and I, you and I have talked about the skill portfolio as a potential competitor uh, to to the degree. Um, you know, I'm really this is the this is like the t ball version of softball. So I'm I'm going to set the ball yeah. on the t and uh, and 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 you get get rolling here. Yeah. No. Look, I mean, the degree is still going to have some lasting validity, right? Like I think most people would agree to that, but. It is it is crumbling into many different you know uh, forms very quickly, right? So in the U.S., we hit peak higher ed enrollment in the year 2011, and we have had declining enrollments in degree seeking you know de degree seeking enrollments in U.S. institutions every year since. So we're going to be coming up on 13 consecutive years of declining enrollments. Now, put it in real real numbers, we've shed 3.72 million students since 2011. And we lost a million just in the pandemic year plus, right? And so 
um, you know, there, there are some real issues with U.S. higher ed as it relates to the cost of higher education. I think for some people, the time involved, right? You know, what's the magic of four years in the bachelor's degree? Like, that's just a simple question to step back and ask, like, can a bachelor's be done in two and a half years? Sure, it can, right? Um, and, and could you take a bachelor's degree in different pieces throughout your career and eventually have it come together in the form of a magical bachelor's degree? Yes, right? So now, I think the big point, though, is that we shouldn't be thinking about degrees and skills as mutually exclusive. That's one big point I want to make. We're working now with a lot of colleges and universities, in particular private liberal arts universities, who are trying to improve their, their marketability as it comes to preparing students for success in the workplace. And they're basically saying, hey, we want students to be broadly educated in, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the classic pedagogy of the liberal arts. But we also want to make sure they're specifically skilled. And so one of the things Kaplan's doing is partnering with them to offer industry recognized credential programs so students can leave with their bachelor's degree and, I don't know, a designation in cybersecurity or something in financial services, right? So, so the point here is don't think about it as an either or, like I'm either going down the college path or I'm going to do this technical skills, vocational training now. And on the flip side, right, one of the biggest areas of innovation for technical and skills training is weaving in some of those classic elements of, of the liberal arts. I wouldn't use that term, right, but skilled communication, collaboration, teamwork, right, these are elements that don't need to live exclusively inside of a bachelor's degree or an on-campus experience, they can be taught in smaller bite-sized chunks as well. And so, but but yes, to answer your question, there, there, there is more growth right now in non-degree enrollments. There's more growth in boot camps. There's more growth in industry-recognized credential achievement. If you just look at that, those are areas that are growing while higher ed enrollments in the U.S. are declining. Now, Globally, there's there's a little bit different story because we've got a rising middle class globally that is going to have you know a lot of desire for higher education and degrees. But even in those situations, again, we need to stop thinking of this as either or, right? It's a both and. Even if I get a college degree, I should leave with some specific skills. In fact, there was an interesting Heckinger article last year about the nearly 900,000 people enrolled in community colleges who already have advanced degrees. They're going back to community college, not to get their associate's degree. They're going back for specific skills training. And a lot of them are people who have master's degrees and PhDs, right? So there's a lot of fascinating stories under the hood out there. And But but I think the most powerful one that still includes college is the idea of, of employers starting to offer college degrees as part of an education benefit. You know, I can go work for Papa John's as a pizza delivery guy out of high school and get my college degree for free. Now, a lot of people in college will do jobs like wait tables, deliver pizza, right? So instead of going to college to eventually get a job and waiting tables or delivering pizza in the meantime, I can go deliver pizza to get my college degree. And that is a game changer in the grand scheme of things. Now, it's not gonna be the on-campus experience where I'm in the fraternity in the residence hall or whatever for four years, but I get my college degree, I can get it paid for entirely by my employer, and I can make some money and get some experience along the way. That is going to become a very popular route for a lot of young Americans. Yeah, that uh, you and I have talk, talked about it as work to learn and not 
the current environment of let's go cloister ourselves and learn for a long period of time and then enter uh, enter the workforce. So there's, I, I agree, there's going to be a lot of movement there. Uh, love what Kaplan has been doing on what you coined, uh, you personally coined as the cred degree, the credential on top of the degree. Uh, I, I totally, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally aligned with that, with the exception that it might extend what is already a fairly long uh, right. process. Uh, I, I was also, but I was also heartened uh, by an article. I, I think I read it this morning about the Texas system uh, uh, breaking apart some of their uh, degree programs, especially on the quote unquote liberal arts side of things and adding a project management uh, certification or, or, or badge or credential uh, so that they've got some, you know, industry recognized uh, credential when they leave. So uh, I agree. The momentum is here. We've just got to get more people to listen to the brain and bus deeds of the world and, uh, and really make, uh, make meaningful change. So speaking of meaningful change, uh, this next question is pointed at higher ed in institutions, especially those that are, uh, you know, st still kind of living in a more arcane past. Are higher education institutions ready for the innovation and pace of change that's needed to keep up? Or are corporations going to have to step into the breach? Well, look, you're seeing you're seeing the, the really innovative colleges and universities step up and several that have been doing so for a while. But but across the industry of higher education writ large, no, there is still a lot of hand wringing. There's been a lot of conversations about innovation and change. So a lot of big talk, but not a lot of, you know, fire. Right. Maybe a little smoke starting to come up. But, you know, and, and I, you know, the pandemic kind of put everybody into a mode where they were indeed thinking about innovation because it was kind of forced. Right. Like, well, what happens if this happens? But but they were also putting out so many fires of different issues, dealing with the pandemic, all, you know, like, so, so they got so bogged down into, you know, the, the issues they were dealing with that were right, right in front of them, uh, that I think a lot of the innovation moments that kind of popped up briefly just got quickly, you know, tamped down. And so that's my worry, right? Like there were a lot of conversations, there still are. I think a lot of institutions are really seriously exploring, you know, big mission questions, right? Like, do we want to move online? And what does that mean if we've been a traditional residential campus where we've always said it's about the experience and it's about being in the classroom with our professors? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to you know, pivot from that and say, yeah, but you could also do our online degree program, right? And, 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 and that now say, well, wait a minute, but it's not residential and it's not in person and it's not like all the things that you said were the magic ingredients. So I think there's a real crisis of you know, purpose and mission with some institutions but I'll tell you, you know, your, to your point about employers, we're already seeing massive employer movements. You know, the IBMs of the world and Amazon with AWS and, you know, Facebook with some of their certs and, you know, the Google IT certs. You know, the, the most impressive thing about that is that these are companies that are developing their own curriculum, certainly to help people get jobs using their software and tools and things. So there's some self-interest in there. But they're developing the curriculum. And these and these are certifications that lead to very good paying jobs, right? And a lot of them are jobs you can do anywhere in the country, right? So it's not like you have to live in, you know, San Francisco to get one of these jobs. You could do it from wherever. And 
And so, but what was so profound about Google's announcement is when they launched their Google uh, tech certificates, they came out and said, in addition, that as an employer, we will treat these as the equivalent of a college degree in our hiring process. Now that's, it wasn't just, we're gonna create this new training, right, for these tech certificates, but we're also gonna kind of put our own, you know, uh, you know uh, emphasis behind it and saying, we're going to treat this as equivalent to a college degree. So that's that's a big statement from a very you know well known organization, global brand, uh, and you're starting to see various employers follow suit in different ways. So again, the degree is going to hang in there, but it's on the decline. And the things that are growing are you know the employer driven things. We've got innovative universities out there. You look at the Arizona State Universities and the Purdue Universities and Western Governors and Southern New Hampshire, right? Plenty of innovation out there. But this is a handful. You know, you say, you say show me the list of 100. Eh, you're a little hard pressed to find 100. And what, what I've been doing is trying to find innovative leaders, right? Because I don't believe there's such a thing as an innovative institution. It's an innovative institution during a period of time led by innovative leaders who have the support of their board, alignment with their senior cabinet. So people always ask me, what kind of universities do you work with? And I say, you know, the public, private, small, I said, nope. I said, it's all about the vision of the leadership and the degree to which they're aligned around growth, innovation, transformation. Um, and, you know, that's, and, you know, so that's why I love what I do because I'm, I'm really trying to only work with people like that. <laughs> so it makes things pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I worry as we're uh, hopefully touch wood uh, coming out of uh, two years of pandemic and all the, the the stress and pressure that higher education institutions have been under. I really hope that uh, that that the answer is, OK, whew, we can all go back to what we were doing before the pandemic, uh, because the world has changed. The world is moving forward rapidly, especially in this whole conversation around uh, around skills and uh, and and work readiness, uh, jo job readiness. So I I hope that you know if innovation continues anywhere, it's uh, it's in that place. Um, so we're we're getting close to the end of our time here. Uh, so if you were the leader of a higher education institution, what? is like one thing you'd be doing right now? What's the top priority? Well, I, I would certainly be expanding the the non-degree offerings that that I would have both for current students and and non-degree enrolled students, right? Like that, that is a big one. And, and I would 100% have that aligned to either my regional workforce needs uh, or if there are jobs that can be done, you know, anywhere national level jobs uh, to, to that, right? And there are universities that are doing that. They're looking at labor market data, right? They're looking at, you know, the hot in-demand skills. They're developing programs around that. Or they're partnering with organizations very quickly to bring those kinds of programs to bear under their brand. Um, but I got to tell you, where, where I'd really be pushing right now is um, highly differentiated from a tuition perspective, online bachelor's degrees, especially if I was a quality academic institution. I think there's a huge opportunity for elite university brands to develop price differentiated online bachelor's degrees. You know, you take a top ranked university, I'll use my own alma mater, right, at Duke University, they're probably not going to enroll more than 6,000 undergrads at Duke, right? You got to build new buildings, you got to do all kinds. So fine, great. Okay, you're going to have roughly 6,000 undergrads, but there are a million students around the globe 
who are academically gifted enough to go to a Duke university, right? Who don't have the money or the other wherewithal to do it. But if you had an online bachelor's degree at say, I don't know, 20% of the cost of, of the degree that I would get if I physically went to campus, you're not going to cannibalize your student. You're going to still have the 6,000 undergrads who desperately want to be there for that in-person experience. But there are hundreds of thousands of students globally that you could unlock your mission for at a highly priced differentiated bachelor's degree. And if you can take it to scale, those programs can be highly you know, financially accretive to the institution. And from a mission perspective, you're not just serving 6,000 students a year, you're serving 60,000 or 600,000, or dare I say, 6 million in some form. So I think we can get a lot more aggressive in terms of thinking about mission impact through online education, but we're gonna have to do it in a highly disruptive price way because you say, why, why are you saying that, Brandon? There is no growth in the United States. There's no population growth in the United States. There's population growth globally. So if U.S. higher education wants to grow and be relevant, right, just focusing on U.S. domestic students, we're going to be fighting over a pie that's actually shrinking to some degree, especially in traditional age students. But if you look at it globally, there's going to be two billion people added to the middle class globally in the next decade. And we're sitting here talking about the 36 million Americans who have some college, no degree. Yeah, I want to help them get skilled. But that 36 million pales in comparison from a, a global mission impact perspective to the 2 billion that are you know, uh, projected to come into the middle class who will all be very interested in higher education solutions. They just can't afford the U.S. price point right now. Yeah, that's that, that's for sure. Um, so we are we're. Brandon and I could uh, we could continue talking about this for a long time. For example, the the next question that I want to ask is about the role of accreditors. <laughs> That's another forty <laughs> minutes. Whole thing. Yeah, we can't go there. Yeah, I know, I know that, that that would just take us down a down yeah. a whole rabbit hole that we unfortunately don't have time for. But Brandon, I'm going to have you back on the show uh, in in the future. We're going to continue this conversation. Uh, again, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, you can find Brandon. He's uh, uh, a contributor to Forbes. He's on LinkedIn. Uh, so so find him. Listen to what this guy has to say about the world of skills. Higher education and uh, and and work, workforce development just a super super smart guy thank you brandon yeah great talking to you we'll look forward to catching you again soon yeah so this is andy tempty this is the balancing act podcast we are on all the major uh, podcast services uh, uh, download subscribe uh, buy the book balancing act find all things uh, andrew tempty at andrewtempty.com and we will see you next week <laughs>